The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, 
for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Those words from Jesus are really our entire focus this morning, and this whole text kind of uh, moves in that direction and points us to that promise. And so that really will be the focus of our thinking and our worship this morning. My name's Bob. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, if you're newer, welcome. We're working our way through the Gospel of John and have been since last August. And we find ourselves this morning on page 849 of the Bible that's underneath your seat, if you want to use that. Um, if you are newer, I'd also invite you to come see me afterwards, and I'd love to give you one of these little scripture journals for the Gospel of John that has the text of the scriptures in there. And we've just been using that um, to work our way through. Uh, I've colored mine with colored pencils and made notes, and so it's just the kind of thing that you can uh, treat a little more usefully than your Bible sometimes, um, just marking it up and journaling in it and that kind of thing. So I'd love to give you that if you would like it. Um, if you were not here on Friday night, man, you missed out. Uh, poor Bishop Hooper was here uh, leading us through. I guess, I mean, it was, I call it a concert, but that's not really what it was. Uh, it was more of a um, reflective night of music, uh, focusing on Christ's death. And man, it was just a really, really rich time. If you were here, you know that. Uh, really powerful music and fantastic musicians. And um, I told Micah, Micah was running the, uh, he was mixing the sound. He's really good at that. And my wife and I were sitting up in the balcony, and it was just amazing. I, uh, I don't know if you guys, hi, balcony. How are you guys doing up there, by the way? Good to see you all. Um, when we first moved in, the sound up there was really not that good. And so uh, I sat down with Mike. I was like, hey, can we figure that out? And so Mike Kresnick and his crew have spent the last year or so uh, replacing some speakers up there and getting it just right. And so it really was fun to be here um, on Friday night and enjoy um, the sound of beautiful music in a room that's made for that and with some equipment that really makes that powerful. And uh, man, it was just really a wonderful night. So um, was really glad that we were able to be a part of that. And thanks, Mike. And uh, your crew for leading us in that. Uh, let me remind you what we believe about the Word of God. Um, here's the simple reality. It's the Word of God. Um, what we mean then is to say that when we say it's the Word of God, we mean God is, has inscripturated His revelation. These words are given to us from God because God has revealed himself in ways we can understand in human language and speech and writing and thought so that we can access and know what God is like. So it's word. And also it's the word of God. And so it's divine. It's profound. It's rich. It's inexhaustible. It communicates to us the thoughts, the words, the truth of God himself. And so what that means is that anytime we engage the word of God, we're at the one level just doing the same kind of thing we do when we read any book or any work of literature. We're reading words and thinking about them. And on the other hand, we're, we're realizing this is divine revelation. And so there's a sense in which it's weightier, it's deeper, 
Um, it's more exhaustive than any other kind of communication. And what that means is that the goal of preaching, the goal of what I do, is not to say everything, but to say something. There's no way we can exhaust the meaning of any text. There's no way we can say everything we need to say about John 16 in any one sermon. The goal is just to say something, to try to capture what God is saying in this text and to, to put that meaningfully for us living now and trying to walk with God and worship God now. And so as we do the work of preparing sermons uh, here at Coram Deo, uh, we often say that. That's kind of a trademark phrase. Hey, our goal isn't to say everything, it's to say something. Uh, and I feel that in this text this morning because there are so many important things that we could say and so much that Jesus does say in John 16 that really... As I've been praying and thinking about it, I've just been asking, all right, I can't say everything. What's the something we need to say? And really the promise Jesus makes in verse 33 is the thing that I just want us to think about and focus on. I think it's clear from the text that all that Jesus says leading up to verse 33 is getting us to that point. And as you'll see next week in chapter 17, we turn from Jesus' sort of words to his disciples to what's called the high priestly prayer, where Jesus is now praying on behalf of his disciples. So in a sense, verse 33 is the concluding sentence of what Jesus has been saying to this point. And so I just want to key in on this promise in verse 33, where Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the essence of what Jesus wants us to hear. And that's the essence of where I want to focus our attention this morning. And so here's where we're going to go as we consider these words. I want to talk about the power of this promise, the perspective of this promise, the problem with this promise, and the solution to the problem. All right? The power of this promise, the perspective of this promise, the problem with this promise. And then the solution to the problem. First of all, the power of this promise. The power of these words from Jesus, the power of this promise, is that it pulls us out of both naive optimism and cynical pessimism. These are the two extremes that we are prone to as human beings. Some Christians have no problem believing that Jesus has overcome the world. However, they tend to downplay or minimize the reality that in this world, we will have trouble. And when we believe that Jesus really has overcome the world, but we downplay the reality of trouble and pain and hardship in the world, where we end up is a place of naive optimism or what you might call sentimentality. Dick Kyes, in his really helpful book, Seeing Through Cynicism, gives us this simple description of sentimentality. He says this, when we fall into sentimentality, honesty about the depth of evil in the world is eclipsed by entertainment, distraction, and a preoccupation with niceness. There's a certain kind of Christianity that's, that's prone in a particular way to this kind of sentimentality. That just wants to keep things nice, uplifting, inspiring, encouraging. Let's not talk about hard things, difficult things, painful things. Let's not really be honest about the depth of evil and pain and suffering and brokenness in the world. And when we fail to do that, we just find ourselves embracing sentimentality, right? Think about Hallmark movies. Nothing wrong with them. They're great, but they tend to fall into this trap, right? 
always a happy ending, kind of sentimental. And this is one of the things I have a hard time with with, with, with some versions or some expressions of Christianity. Maybe you do too. Um, being a Christian is kind of like being part of a really big family. And, you know, it's great. You're connected to these people from all over the world sharing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a great joy. But when you go to the family reunion, there's always a few crazy uncles, right? There's always a few people who are just like, yeah, Uncle Jim's part of the family, but I mean, I don't know. Kind of, you know, he doesn't do things exactly like us. I have that kind of feeling um, when I encounter sentimentality among Christians. And I feel that way. I don't know if you feel that way, but I feel that way, for instance, when I listen to a lot of modern worship music. I love modern worship music. In some ways, it's great, but it also tends to be very focused on themes of hope and joy and overcoming and sometimes misses Hard realities, darkness, pain, doubt, confusion, disillusionment. It's one of the reasons I really loved Friday night, because what poor Bishop Hooper did is they wrote a bunch of songs about betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, some of the dark and hard, painful themes of the Lenten season, and we're honest about that, and that's something I really appreciate. It's one of the reasons I like that here at Coram Deo, we sing songs like, How Heavy is the Night, and This Darkness, songs out of books like Lamentations, where we can really be honest about some of the things the Bible says in books like Ecclesiastes, and Lamentations, and Job, and the Psalms of Lament. If honesty about the depth of evil in the world is unsettling to you, if you see sentimental tendencies in yourself, if you're prone sometimes to a naive kind of optimism, Jesus wants to pull you out of that. He wants you to hear, hey, in this world, you will have tribulation. The word here means trouble, affliction, distress, hardship. Jesus is saying, look, life is hard, and being a Christian does not exempt you from that. It's not like suddenly you skate across the surface of that. That's a reality of life in the world. In this world, he says to his disciples, you will have trouble. But listen, for some of you, Optimism is not your problem, right? You're on the other side of the spectrum, and I join you there. It's quite easy for you to believe that in this world you will have tribulation. That's the easy part of the promise. For you, the hard thing to believe is that Jesus really has overcome the world. Your temptation is to give in to cynical pessimism, where you see all the difficulty and hardship of life, and you don't feel any of the victory and joy and real lightheartedness that the gospel ought to bring us. And the trouble with cynical pessimism is that it's particularly rewarded by our culture. We live right now in a very cynical moment. Dick Kies again observes this, today's cynicism is slippery and elusive. It is not a school of thought at all, but a voice of doubt in your ear, a predisposition for seeing through people and things, a negative idea about human nature, a mood or attitude of suspicion, or friends with a particular sense of humor. That kind of describes our world, doesn't it? Just pervaded by this mood of cynicism and skepticism that says, hey, don't get your hopes up. 
Don't be one of those people who's optimistic about life. Those people are rubes. Those are the people we make fun of. Don't be one of them. See through things. Be a cynic. Well, for those of you who tend toward pessimism, who tend to be cynical, Jesus wants to pull you out of that. And so he says, take heart. Literally, the exhortation here means be courageous. Have confidence. I have overcome the world. There really is reason in the gospel for joy and hope and optimism. So the power of this promise is that it helps us see the world rightly. It helps us see with a healthy biblical realism that sees life as it is. Years ago, I had an eye injury and I had to wear an eye patch for a couple days. I don't know if any of you have had this experience, but it is very unsettling. And here's why. Because if you only have one eye covered, you have the illusion that you can still see. Because you can still see. But what's messed up is your depth perception. You can see, but it's like you can't tell how far. So I found myself running into doors, pouring milk into my arm. I mean, it was just, that you can't function properly as you ought to in life. This is why if you have an eye patch, they generally won't let you drive. You obviously can't play any sports or do anything that requires depth perception. There's a reason for that because it turns out your eyes work in stereo. And only with both of them functioning properly can you accurately perceive reality. What Jesus is giving us in this promise is real spiritual depth perception. In the world you will have trouble, tribulation, affliction, hardship. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You need both of these truths in order to see clearly and correctly. So Christianity, friends, is not naive optimism, and it's not cynical pessimism. It's biblical realism. And that's what Jesus gives us in this promise. That leads then to our second point, the perspective of this promise. I want you to remember that John, the writer, is looking back on this moment with Jesus many years later with the benefit of hindsight. And so in what he is writing, John wants us to understand that the disciples in the moment had a limited perspective. They did not grasp what Jesus was saying. Once they understand the promise Jesus is making, it's going to give them a whole new perspective. But right now, they have a very limited perspective that they can hear what Jesus is saying, but they don't yet understand it through the lens he means it. Look at verses 16 through 20 of John 16. This is kind of this funny interaction between Jesus and his disciples. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Do you ever feel that when you read Jesus? You're like, I have no idea what he is talking about. You are not alone. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into Joy. What's he talking about? 
Well, he's talking about his death and resurrection. That's what he's preparing them for. He's about to be arrested and tried and crucified. And that's going to be for his disciples a moment of sorrow and confusion. But then their sorrow is going to turn to joy because Jesus will rise from the dead. And so he says, hey, a little while you're going to feel sorrowful. And then you're going to have joy. And then he goes on to use this powerful illustration, verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. This word sorrow could be translated distress, anguish, pain. In the anguish of labor, you are not thinking about how great it will be later, are you? Not that I know this. I'm just, I asked my wife and she said, yes, this is true. The only thing that seems real is the anguish of right now. But then he goes on to say, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. There's a reality that comes after labor that changes your perspective, where the joy of new life outweighs the anguish and the pain of labor. And notice Jesus says in verse 22, so also. So he's using this as an illustration or a word picture. So also you, disciples, have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now remember, the disciples have no idea what Jesus is talking about. They haven't yet begun to feel the sorrow of Good Friday. But John, as he is writing this later, knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. Because John was there on Good Friday. Jesus spoke to John from the cross and said, hey, take care of my mom. John was there in the moment of deepest heartache and pain and anguish. He felt that sense of hopeless sorrow. And he was there for the joy of Easter Sunday when all that got turned upside down and suddenly a new reality broke in that he hadn't even had the possibility of imagining. And John is saying to you, that is the pattern of the Christian life. Good Friday followed by Easter Sunday. John is saying, and Jesus is saying, right now it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That's the perspective of this promise. And that perspective is all over the New Testament. The perspective is the little moment the disciples experienced between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that little sorrow turning to joy, that is itself a metaphor for what all of life is like. All of life is sorrow that will be turned to everlasting joy, but only when God's kingdom comes. And this perspective is all over the New Testament. Listen, Romans 8 says, the whole creation groans together in the pains of childbirth, but the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4 says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The whole New Testament says, hey, this is the paradigm you have to have. The pain and anguish and sorrow is temporary. The joy is eternal. And the disciples needed to understand that they would have sorrow, but their sorrow would turn to joy. And Jesus told them that before it happened so that they could anticipate it and live in the moment. And you need to know, and John understands that you and I need to know, 
that we too will have sorrow, but that sorrow will not have the last word, that sorrow will be turned to joy. Listen, whatever hardship, pain, confusion, anguish, discouragement, despair you suffer in this life, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, that's coming to an end. It's temporary. I know it feels permanent sometimes, but it's not. After Good Friday comes Easter Sunday. Friends, the tomb was occupied for three days. The throne is occupied forever. And that's the perspective of this promise. That's what Jesus is trying to give us a lens to see. That this is the framework we need to see through. Sorrow for a little while, joy forever. That's the perspective he's giving us. But that leads to the problem with this promise. And the problem is simply this. This promise doesn't always seem as real as our circumstances, does it? It's one thing to sit in church and hear a sermon. It's another thing to get that call from the doctor's office or from the divorce attorney or from your wayward child who wants nothing to do with Jesus. This promise is nice on paper and it's meaningful and we believe it, but it doesn't always speak as loudly as our circumstances. Notice what Jesus says right before he gives us this promise. The disciples have just made this affirmation of faith. And I want you to notice this little discussion Jesus has with the disciples. Verse 29 of chapter 16. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now, if you've been following the narrative to this point, you should be clued into the fact that whenever the disciples think they get it, they still don't get it. So this is one of those moments where they're like, oh, Jesus, you know what? Now we get it. And the answer is no, you don't. Right? Which is what Jesus says in verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. I want you to imagine Jesus saying that as matter-of-factly and as pastorally as possible. I don't think Jesus here is saying, oh, you guys say you believe, but you're not, you don't really believe. What he's saying is, yeah, yeah, I know. And here's what's about to happen. Things are going to get hard, and y'all are going to leave me alone. Your circumstances are about to change, and when they do, in your fear, you're going to bail. Every one of us who is a disciple of Jesus lives with a gap between our formal belief and our functional belief. Between the things we profess to be true and the things we actually live by. And that gap is our greatest problem. The problem isn't with the promise. The problem is really with our, our fickle faith, right? We say we believe, and we really do believe, and yet we don't believe, not down in the nitty-gritty. Like, in my heart of hearts, I know this promise is true. I love these words of Jesus. I love this text. 
And yet, man, if you were to ask me, hey, is your life, Bob, just, just driven by a sense that in this world you will have trouble, and yet Jesus has overcome the world? I would say, absolutely not. My life is driven by the first half of that promise. In this world you will have trouble. Yes, Lord, thank you. That's true, right? Because I, I fall into cynical pessimism all the time. And so my functional way of operating, when my circumstances are difficult, is not, hey, you know what? Jesus is in control. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus is my hope and my faith and my trust. My functional way of living is, well, of course, yeah, this is the world we live in, right? Things never work out. It's always troublesome. I fall into cynical pessimism. I turn on the songs on the radio that are very cynical, and I like listening to them. (laughs) So the problem with this promise is that it doesn't always seem as real as our circumstances. And, and when I say the problem with the promise, I want you to hear the problem isn't with what Jesus is saying. The problem is with our ability to actually live by this, right? The gap between the fact that we know this promise is true in some way, and yet actually we just don't actually live like it. Bringing this into the reality of our actual lives is where the gap and the problem is. So let's look finally at the solution to that problem. And it's right there in verses 32 and 33. Behold, the hour is coming... Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I want you to notice the word alone. The solution to our problem, catch this, is in what Jesus is going to do alone. He's on his way to the cross And he will hang there alone. He is going to do the work that only he can do in our place as our substitute. You know what the solution is to your failure to believe and rest in this promise? The solution is Jesus' death in your place. Jesus says, you're all going to scatter and leave me alone, but... I'm not alone because the Father is with me. See, friends, the Father and the Son together in this moment are on one mission, and that is to overcome the world, to overcome our fickle faith, to overcome our unbelief, to die for our sin so that we will no longer be defined by unbelief and unfaith, but rather by our union with Christ. He has come to do a work that he alone can do. And he knows in his greatest moment of need, he's going to be left alone. And yet that's okay because he and the Father know this moment is coming. I'm not alone for the Father is with me. Second, notice verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Remember, Jesus is saying all this just before his arrest. And what's about to happen is actually the disciples are not going to have peace. They're going to be scattered to their own homes, fearful, alone. If you've read the gospel story, you know Peter's going to be asked by a servant girl, hey, didn't I see you with Jesus? He's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Right? All the disciples are going to bail. That's what's actually going to happen in the near term. 
As Jesus says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. He knows, actually, tonight you aren't going to have any peace. You're going to run. You're going to be fearful and afraid and lonely and confused and scared. But then, Easter Sunday is going to happen. And the disciples, when that happens, are going to think back on this night. And they're going to think back on this speech. And they're going to realize that because Jesus has died and risen from the dead, they now have a peace that nothing in this world can take away. And they are going to believe this promise in a whole new way. I mean, hear verse 33 again through the perspective the disciples will have on Easter Sunday morning. In this world, you will have trouble. Well, of course, because this world just beat Jesus and mocked Jesus and hung him on a cross. He lived that. Of course, in this world, we will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, of course, because we went to the tomb and it's empty. There's no sin, there's no failure, there's no weakness, there's no character flaw that can put Jesus back in the tomb again. He died for your unbelief and theirs. He died for your cynicism and theirs, even for your sentimentality. In him, you can have peace. Because your hope is not in your ability to hang on to this promise perfectly in every moment of trial and tribulation. Your hope is in the fact that he did. I have said these things to you, he says, that in me you may have peace. Peace, you see, comes from believing the gospel word. Why is John writing this down? So that you can have peace by hearing these things and believing them. In this world, you will have peace. Tribulation, it's a guarantee from Jesus. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I've been thinking as we walk through this Lenten season about the story of Peter. And even if you're just basically familiar with the Easter story, but Peter's denial of Jesus is, is one of those moments that next to Judas's betrayal sort of stands out in the narrative, right? I mean, we have this promise from Jesus, hey, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. We see Peter in the courtyard of the high priest interacting with these servants, and, you know, he, exactly what Jesus said happens. And we'll read about that in a few weeks as we continue on the journey through the Gospel of John. And, and I've been thinking about this from the perspective that John's writing from. Because I've been trying to think about what would it be like to be Peter in the early church? Like your failure is the thing that's like the, the compelling narrative in the story. I mean, you don't read about, there's 11 other disciples. Their names are not usually mentioned. We don't know where those guys were, but we know where Peter was. 
and what he was doing and who he was denying, right? And, and I've been thinking about that through this lens. Peter, we know, also wrote a couple of books in the New Testament, was the most instrumental apostle in the city of Jerusalem and one of the leaders of the early church. And it's fascinating, isn't it, to think about you, put yourself in Peter's shoes if you were Peter. What would make you okay with that story being told? What would make you okay with your failure and your weakness being front and center in the Easter story? The only thing that would make you read that and go, yeah, man, that really happened. Can you believe that? And still have the joy and courage to preach the gospel and lead the church. The only thing that could make you okay with that is if the resurrection really happened. And if you really knew, hey, none of that actually defines me. Jesus paid for all that. Jesus, in fact, was the one who told me I was going to do that. Then he died on the cross for it, rose from the dead, gave me his spirit, and told me to go preach the gospel. Thinking about Peter's story through this lens, I think helps us see the beauty of what the gospel gives us, right? Peter is example A of this reality. Hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble tribulation, hardship, sometimes that trouble, tribulation, and hardship is going to make you fail in dramatic ways. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. And none of that defines you. None of that names you. None of that labels you. None of that matters. What matters is what I have done in your place. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter, to his disciples, to you, and to me. Hey, life in the world is going to be difficult. And yet, it really is true that Jesus got up out of the grave. And because of that, we can have real and lasting peace and joy and hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, as your disciples, as your followers, we thank you for giving us these words. Thank you for this promise. We want to confess and hold up before you both our naive optimism and our cynical pessimism. The places where we are prone to fall off the horse on one side or the other, you know our hearts. You know the places where we are prone to unbelief. So thank you for this reminder that in this world we will have trouble. None of us want to sign up for trouble, tribulation, anguish, anguish, and distress. But you tell us that's what the world will bring. So help us hear that with all the humility and all the courage it requires. And then help us lean into the beauty of the promise that you have overcome the world. That you really did die on the cross in our place you really did get up out of the grave. Because of that, you really are our substitute and our savior. And we have nothing to fear and everything to hope for. So Father, I just realize I, I stand here in a room full of people with various and assorted troubles. All of us know the trouble and the tribulation we're walking out of here into. And it's as unique as our own stories. So help us this morning 
hear your words of peace and of hope and help us rest in the truth that though we do and will have trouble, you have overcome the world. Help us hear that, believe it, rest in it, and rejoice in it for our good and for your glory. Amen.